Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. And with me are Jim Fryer, Inside Towers Managing Editor, and John Celentano, Inside Towers Business Editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence, a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. It looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive subscriber briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com intelligence. This was a short week because of the 4th of July holiday, so the first stories we have on tap today are from Tuesday. Take it away, Jim. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, yeah, we started out this week on Tuesday. I hope everybody had a great Nice long weekend, like we did, and are, we're ready for the new week and the, the the month ahead of us because it's uh, it's going to be busy. Judging by just some of the stories we've seen this week, but we started off with the story that uh, I thought had the wow factor, literally, because it involved uh, a company called Wide Open West that goes by the uh, stock symbol W O W, and the story is that Atlantic Broadband entered into an agreement with Wide Open West to purchase all of its broadband systems. Now, these are all located in Ohio. The WOW, Ohio Broadband System, covers 688,000 homes and businesses in Cleveland and the Columbus area. It serves about 196,000 internet clients, 61,000 videos, 35,000 telephony customers. So it's a huge going concern in Ohio and uh, Atlantic Broadband has uh, certainly increased its portfolio by by picking this up. In fact, the CEO of Atlantic Broadband, which is owned by a parent company called Cogigo Communications, and their CEO, a man named Philippe Jeté, I assume he's here based in the United States, um, said that the acquisition of WOW's Ohio broadband system allows us to add significant scale to our growing and profitable U.S. broadband business. The acquisition also represents a strong strategic fit for Kojigo Communications, as it is complementary to Atlantic Broadband's existing footprint and capitalizes on its existing platform. So, under the guidance of Atlantic Broadband, uh, the management team uh, will uh, take over that that operation and in doing so, try to grow their customer base, revenues, and earnings. What else happened on Tuesday, Leslie? The other story we have from Tuesday takes place in New Jersey. Three carriers, Verizon Wireless, T-Mobile, and AT&T, applied to build a cell tower on the Union County College campus in Cranford, New Jersey. Their request was dismissed, which prompted the telecoms to band together an appeal, that's according to the Tap into Cranford publication. The appeal challenges that the zoning board overstepped its authority in issuing the denial and violated federal law. The original proposal requested a 140-foot monopole to be shared by the carriers. They would each attach and maintain their own antennas. 
the zoning board wanted something less visually impactful. So in their filed complaint, the carrier cited numerous violations, starting with an abuse of what they said is federal law. And they're saying that the violations made it impossible for them to provide telecom services in the township. Other infractions point to possible capricious decision-making when issuing the denial. The Cranford mayor, Kathleen Miller-Prunty, responded, the township committee is committed to defending the zoning board's decision, and they hired a lawyer. Cranford mayor, Kathleen Miller-Prunty, responded that the township committee is committed to defending the zoning board's decision. Boom. End of story. So now that takes us to... Uh, the next story from Tuesday, Jim, our last one. Yes, it wasn't all just domestic news on Tuesday. Uh, we crossed the, the, the pond, as they say, over to Scandinavia, where a major tower company in Scandinavia called Talia uh, sold a minority share, 49% uh, share of its tower business in Finland and Norway to uh, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners which is a fairly well-known conglomerate investment company that's, that has been uh, very active in the, uh, in, in the tower acquisition field. Uh, the f- footprint of uh, Talia comprises about 4,700 towers. Uh, what was interesting about this story is uh, they actually gave the dollar amounts, which was around roughly $1.8 million and of course, the, the multiples uh, derived from that were uh, around 27 times, which is a, a fairly high multiplier. I know, John Salantano, you've, you've done a lot of uh, coverage of, of international uh, acquisitions like this. Uh, there was a, a similar acquisition just, just that's, that week as well, I think, similar to this kind of deal, a 49% sort of a arrangement, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a fair amount of mergers and acquisition activity going on in the tower business globally. Certainly Europe has been lagging, if you will, behind the United States and other markets in terms of their carriers selling off their tower assets ostensibly to raise money, but more importantly, to turn them over to a tower company that can manage and, and grow that business more effectively. Yeah, the carriers don't realize any kind of uh, revenues from those towers per se, whereas uh, turning them over to a infrastructure company like uh, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners and uh, Electa allows those companies to manage it as, a, as an infrastructure business while allowing the carrier to do what it does best and focus on providing services to their customers. So yes, we're, we're likely to see more of these um, there's been a few major ones, uh, you know, earlier in the year with American Tower buying in, uh, Celnex, uh, and and a few others um, expanding their their footprint in the European market, which is basically on the, the, the leading edge of 5G deployment. So we expect a lot of activity uh, in this area going forward, and we'll keep a close eye on it. So back in the USSA, Leslie, uh, what was the FTC up to on Wednesday? Well, Jim, the Federal Trade Commission issued a complaint charging chip supplier Broadcom with monopolizing the market. Uh, The agency said the company used exclusive deals to monopolize semiconductor components 
that are used to deliver broadband and television internet services. Um, at the same time, the FTC also issued a proposed agreement that would settle the whole case. Under the proposed deal, Broadcom must stop requiring its customers to source components from Broadcom on an exclusive or a near exclusive basis. Um, Broadcom doesn't think that what it did violated the law, but they're willing to go along with the agreement and get this resolved. Um, a spokesperson said, we are pleased to move toward resolving this matter. According to the FTC's complaint, Broadcom is a monopolist in the sale of three types of semiconductor components used in devices that deliver television and broadband internet. These chips are the core circuitry that run traditional television broadcast set-top boxes, as well as DSL and fiber broadband devices. And that brings us to our next story from Wednesday, which you wrote, John. Yes, uh, interesting angle here from uh, our usual coverage on the, the infrastructure side of the business, which generally encompasses hardware, software, and the like. Company uh, Dicom Industries, based in Florida, provides uh, telecom service providers and utilities one main product, skilled workers. Uh, the company actually has a contracted workforce of over 14,300 workers across the country. And DICOM is a leading supplier of specialty contracting services throughout the uh, U.S., offering a, a menu of services uh, from program management, network planning, engineering and design, aerial underground and wireless construction and maintenance for uh, uh, the telephone companies, wireless communication service providers. Uh, it actually does fulfillment services for um, the cable companies and um, provides underground uh facility locating services for utilities and, and communication services providers, as well as uh, construction and maintenance for electric and gas utilities. So it's a very uh, diversified organization in terms of the um, capabilities it brings to uh, these uh, wireline, wireless and uh, utility providers. Uh, fairly si sizable company, the, the company reported uh, $3.2 billion in contract revenues uh, for its fiscal year ending uh, January 30th, a little bit down from the year before, ostensibly because of the uh, pandemic, but generated 311 million in uh, adjusted EBITDA. So it, it's garnered a position in the market where it serves some of the largest companies in the organization. Actually, its top five customers account for about two thirds of its revenues with AT&T um, uh, coming in at 21% uh, of the total revenues for its first quarter, Comcast, Verizon, Lumen, and Windstream uh, making up the, uh, the rest of the top five. And then other companies, including utilities, uh, smaller wireless service providers and telephone companies uh, make up the rest. Uh, it certainly is anticipating growth uh, with its largest customers. Uh, AT&T, as it revamps its, uh, its debt structure and its uh, operations, uh, you know, DICOM expects it to take a, a larger share of AT&T's business as AT&T moves into um, both 5G deployments, fiber of the home, and, uh, and certainly uh, the new C-band deployments. So uh, Comcast is still a top customer for the company, uh, and it grew its revenues uh, on a year-to-year -year basis, about 11%. Um, you know, 
DICOM performs for Comcast a variety of uh, installation work as well as fulfillment activity. When, and we sit, when we say fulfillment, we mean, you know, these are the technicians that come to your home and install set-top boxes and Wi-Fi routers uh, on behalf of the, uh, the cable companies. So uh, it did experience a little bit of a drop in business with Verizon in the past year, but again, uh, it expects to pick that back up as a uh, uh, Verizon uh, revamps its uh, wireless deployments, especially uh, uh, with its C-band uh, priorities. So uh, with Lumen and Windstream, it's primarily fiber optic installations, fiber to the home installations, and that's going to continue for some time. So, interesting company and uh, one to keep an eye on uh, as sort of a, on the periphery of, uh, of the infrastructure business, uh, fielding a, a team of workers that uh, are helping to close that gap on uh, worker shortages. So, Thank you, John. Our next story is from the South Wireless Summit. Our new technology editor, Jay Sharp Smith, wrote this. There is up to $120 billion available today and over the next 10 years to bridge the digital divide. That's according to Bill D'Agostino Jr. He's director of wireless for Frontier Communications. So if somebody tells you it's a funding issue, it's not a funding issue. It's a meeting of the minds. It's finding the right opportunities. It's putting the right partnerships together. But there is plenty of money available to begin to close that digital divide, he said. More than 30 million Americans today have broadband infrastructure that doesn't provide minimally acceptable speeds, according to D'Agostino. He compared the effort to provide high-speed internet to all Americans to the rural electrification project in the United States in the 1930s. And that brings us to Thursday. On Thursday, our friend Mark Danzi, who I've known from early days here in Philadelphia, uh, he's done quite well, uh, which always good, good to see, but uh, they, they just keep expanding uh, their, their, their reach with Digital Bridge and the reach has now not only gone international, but it's 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 the reach has gone over to Southeast Asia, uh, where they have formed a tower platform that's focused on the Southeast Asian market. It's called Edgepoint Infrastructure, and that has Edgepoint has secured more than ten thousand sites across Indonesia and Malaysia, and they're even looking at additional growth across the Asia Pacific region. Uh, the company Edgepoint has controlling stake in Indonesia. Uh, I won't even try to pronounce the name of this company, but it owns and manages over 4,000 sites. And it purchased another 4,200 sites from uh, another company in, in Indonesia. So that keeps growing. And uh, we wish uh, Mr. Ganzi and Digital Bridge good luck as they keep adding to their, to their domain. I guess the sun will never set on the Digital Bridge empire. Well, thank you, Jim. That brings us to another story from that day. New York State Attorney General Letitia James wants a federal appellate court to allow the state to enforce a law requiring broadband providers to offer $15 a month service to low-income households. In June, U.S. District Court Judge Dennis Hurley blocked enforcement of that new state law. Last week, James began an appeal of that order. She hasn't made any substantive arguments yet, that's according to Media Post. A group of associations representing broadband carriers challenged the law. 
They argued that New York State has no authority to set broadband prices. Hurley's order stemmed from that challenge. The groups were the New York State Telecommunications Association, CTIA, ACA Connects, US Telecom, NTCA, and the Satellite Broadcasting and Communications Association. They sought an injunction prohibiting enforcement. Hurley agreed, writing that the FCC stripped states of the power to regulate pricing in 2018. Um, Hurley argued that New York's $15 a month mandate stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the FCC's reasoned decision to assure interstate broadband providers that no common carrier rate regulations await them beyond the horizon. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. And that brings us to another story from you, Jim, this one from Friday. Yes, on Friday, the, the great new world of commercial driverless car services has begun. Uh, T-Mobile announced that uh, they're using their uh, T-Mobile 5G network to power the uh, new car services in Las Vegas. Use these, these cars are uh, Halos, they're called. Uh, Halo was a company that was started by a couple of University of Penn grads not too long ago, uh, who then sold it to Lyft the car driver service that uh, we widely use. So this has begun now in earnest and commercially in Las Vegas, the driverless halo cars pulling up at your, at your command and taking you to where you, uh, where you want to go. It'll be interesting to see in February, we are having a trade show. The Nate trade show will be February in Las Vegas. So uh, I don't know if I'm quite brave enough to get into one of those yet, but I'll be happy to watch people do it and hopefully hear reports that they made it to their destination. So um, we'll uh, we'll see how that develops and we can report on it firsthand, I guess, in February in Vegas. Um, so we closed the, the week though with a terrific analysis by John about edge computing. John? Yeah, thanks, Jim. The, the article is entitled, Where's the Edge? And one definition of edge computing from Vapor.io states that edge computing brings computation and data storage closer to the location where it is needed to improve response times and save bandwidth. In wireless, we refer to it as multi-access edge computing or simply mobile edge computing or MEC, M-E-C. The question is, where is that edge? Our inclination is to think of the edge in physical terms, uh, wireless network edge at the cell tower, uh, wireline network edge at optical network terminals on customer premises, or cloud edge in a data center. A better notion to consider the edge, not in physical dimensions, but in latency in milliseconds as the time to access computing resources that various applications require. So specifying edge computing in time allows for rational planning and deployment of required infrastructure, namely servers, power, uh, heating and air conditioning, security, and fiber to connect the edge computing resources. So let's do a little science uh, test here. Uh, The speed of light is a measure of responsiveness. In space, light travels at 186,000 miles per second or about 300,000 kilometers per second. That translates to 186 miles or 300 kilometers per millisecond. Light in the form of optical signals speeding through earthbound fiber optic networks 
with its uh, built-in transmission and switching equipment losses may hit 200 kilometers per millisecond. So let's, for discussion purposes, take it down to 100 kilometers per millisecond. That means for applications requiring latency of five milliseconds or less, the edge could be located as far as 500 kilometers or about 300 miles away. Here, the location of the edge, edge is determined by the requisite response time of the application, not distance. So the article goes on to talk about some examples and approaches different companies are, are taking. Uh, I've included a, an interesting chart that characterizes uh, uh, on one axis, the uh, infrastructure and transport costs uh, uh, from low, medium to high, and, uh, and uh, on, the, on the horizontal axis, latency in terms of in milliseconds at five intervals of five, 20, and 50 milliseconds. So we show that for uh, mobile uh, edge computing or MEC, we can get low costs for the infrastructure and, and less than five milliseconds uh, latency we can go to regional data centers up to 20 megasecond, uh, milliseconds out. And then the large cloud data centers where we, we um, access our apps on the internet uh, can be a lot longer or maybe out 50 milliseconds. So uh, try to get into a little bit of a, a, an analysis, but characterize the fact that you know, the edge can be not so much physically where it's located, but rather how, how we meet time constraints for different applications. So encourage everyone to take a look at the article. We've already gotten terrific response uh, this morning and uh, uh, it's a timely topic and uh, we're, we're gonna try and stay on top of it. Well, thank you for that insightful analysis, John. We really appreciate it. And with that, that's a wrap. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.